All right, well, welcome again. If you're new to the group, uh, we've been discussing leadership. As men, God has given us the role of leadership in, in different areas of our lives, certainly in our homes, with our wives and our children, um, in the church and in the world, just in life as we, in the workplace or wherever the Lord may have placed us. And so we want to lead well. And uh, this time is intended to be uh, interactive, so don't be shy. I'll have questions throughout that I want you to, to give me feedback on. If you have a question, raise your hand, let me know. But we, I want to discuss these things and work these things through together. But we've been dealing over the last uh, several lessons with the concept of leading with love specifically, leading with the attribute of love. And we, we started by applying that to our wives. And those are recorded. Uh, you can go back and listen to those. But today I want to move on beyond that more broadly to talk about leading with love in the other areas that, of responsibility that God has given to us. Uh, this will still apply, of course, to our wives, but let's think about it more generally than just that specific application. Let's start with this question, though. And I want you to give me uh, just general answers. I'm not looking for the Sunday school answer here, but just... In general, what skills are required to be a great leader? So in, in your job, if you've, if you've had a boss that you thought was a really good boss, you say, man, my boss is a great boss. What do you mean by that? What makes a good leader? Let's talk about that. Communication. Communication, okay. Good follower. Good follower. In this what way? Compassion. Good follower in, in what sense? You can't lead unless you can follow. <clears throat> okay. Listening. They listen, yeah. Delegates well. They delegate well. Has to be humble. Humble. Okay. I had a great boss. He was not afraid to share things that he needed to grow in mm -hmm. and information that some people might hold back, like just so I can control, you know, but really train you to replace him type thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so those are those are common leadership skills, um, but Christian leadership requires more than just those skills, right? A, a lot of unbelievers demonstrate those qualities well, right? And and so I'm not saying they're not part of leadership; they are. But the Christian leader has those attributes, the, those skills but adds to those skills something else. Compassion for goodness. It's character, right? It's the character of Christ added to the natural necessary skills for leadership. So it's not a denial of those, but it's an addition of adding to those characteristics Christian character, Christ-like character. The Christian, Christian leadership's patterned after and saturated with Christ, Right? that should flow out of us. It's saturated with the gospel. It's saturated with his character. Because of that, Christian leaders prioritize people over projects. It's important. We prioritize people over projects. Jesus was, was so masterful at this. I'm, I'm always amazed as I read the gospel accounts of instances in which Jesus is on his way to accomplish something really important. I mean, it may be as important as someone's about to die and someone's come and begged him to, to go and heal that person. And yet on the way, something happens to distract 
from our perspective, to distract from that very important task. And how does Jesus respond every single time? What's that? He goes to hell. Yeah. He's, he's not put off, right. right? He's not get out of the way. Don't you see how busy I am? Don't you? Or he, he prioritizes those people. Now, in, in, his, uh, uh, in the fact that he's God, he also can deal with that and then still go just raise that person from the dead if they die, okay? So he has that ability that we don't have. But I'm always amazed at the compassion that he has for people. Um, even when he's very, very busy with something that is of, of utmost importance. That's a characteristic that Christian leaders have to imitate, that we care more about people than projects. That doesn't mean that we're lazy or that we neg- neglect the projects that need to be done. We, we, we do keep that in sight. We, we're hard workers, right? People, our secular people around us should see us working hard with a good work ethic. But at the same time, The Christian leader understands that if I'm given a task at work, the task as a Christian includes more than just the administrative details of getting that task done. It includes the people that are with me in that project. God would have me have an influence on them as we complete the task well. That's what separates a Christian leader from just a leader in general. And so... We really can't underestimate the impact that character can have on others who work alongside us. A, a truly, thoroughly Christian character can, can open up gospel opportunities. The Bible is clear that we need to be faithful and bold in opening our mouths and actually sharing the gospel. So the, sharing the gospel is not just living a Christian lifestyle, but it certainly includes living a Christian lifestyle. Our boldness has to be matched with our character and the way we live our daily lives. The Bible also says that Christians are seek to live a quiet life of faithful obedience to the Lord. And sometimes it's that faithful, quiet life just day in, day out that ends up opening conversations for clear-cut gospel presentation. I was reminded of that this week. And then just talking to a man in our church who's in the military, and he explained to me that just in recent days, he's had a string of men come to him seeking counsel, and it's led to gospel opportunities, like four or five different men, high-ranking men, um, in the last couple of weeks. As we started to talk about what, what's happened there, how has that happened, as it turns out, it's just really been two years of faithfully being a godly man seeking to take gospel opportunities as they come, um, but just faithful, one foot in front of the other, living every day for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that difference, especially in that environment, um, is stark, right? If you've been in the military, you know that, that that's different. When you're not going out in the evenings and doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, and you, you carry yourself in a certain way that truly patterns after Christ, that shows up. And what happened was th- these men who initially for the last two years seemed to want nothing to do with him to really care nothing for his way of life when their life sort of hit the fan they came to him and, and so it's just a good reminder <clears throat> that what we say matters but also how we live matters it's true in how we lead our home it's true in the church and whatever influence we have in the church and it's true in the world we work hard but we do so for the glory of Christ and for the gospel 
seeking to have an impact on the people around us. As we think about the character of Christ, there are a whole lot of things we could focus our attention on. But as we've been discussing this virtue of love over the past several lessons, as I said earlier, I want to now broaden that idea and think specifically about how us patterning our lives after the love of Christ and how we carry ourselves um, can be a, a method for the gospel. As we think about this command to love, it really is all over the Scripture. Think about 1 Peter 4, 8. This has been one of my meditation verses of late. It says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Or how about, this is our, one of our memory verses, Romans twelve ten. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Or John 13, 34, 35 Jesus speaking to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So obviously, love is a crucial Christian virtue. But of all the passages in the scriptures that are are famous for the discussion of love, there is one that really stands above them all as far as renown and fame. It's read in many weddings, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? So famous is it that it's earned the title, the love chapter. And so we're going to be spending our time over the next couple of sessions in 1 Corinthians 13 specifically and looking at those different attributes, descriptions of love that are given there. But before we do that, let me just give you an overview of, of the letter itself because it matters a lot as we think about the context of 1 Corinthians 13. So the theme of 1 Corinthians is correction and condemnation. Correction and condemnation. That's because the church in Corinth was really a church that was a mess um, on a number of fronts. They were allowing blatant sin to happen in the church, known open rebellion of a flagrant nature without addressing that sin. Um, there, was, there, were, there were factions in the church um, over, I follow this person, I follow that person. Uh, there was disunity because of that. And then also there seems to have been this fascination with gifts, spiritual gifts, especially the miraculous gifts, and the pursuit of spiritual gifts, not for the purpose of glorifying God and edifying the body, but for the prideful purpose of, of bringing sort of recognition to themselves, of self-edification. And so that becomes really crucial, by the way, when we study the miraculous gifts and how they're discussed in 1 Corinthians, because it's a tone of correction, right? Um, and, and that's what we come to in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 comes right between chapter 12 and 14, which deal heavily with the issue of gifts. And that's the context of 13 as well. But he, he steps aside from discussing gifts in the general sense, and instead begins to discuss the character, the chief character attribute of love in the use of gifts. So with that in mind, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to start in verse 1 and read all the way down to the beginning of verse 8. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Now, <clears throat> again, this is a passage that you likely have a lot of familiarity with. And yet, as we know, sometimes familiarity can cause a passage sort, sort of to lose the, the punch that it should have in our lives as we think about it. So we're going to slow down. We're going to work through these attributes, and we're going to break them into two parts. There are 16 descriptions of love here in this passage. And we're going to look at eight this morning, and we'll look at eight the, at our next session, Lord willing. But in these 16 descriptions of love, he begins in verses 1 to 3 by this sort of opening statement to show us just how bankrupt spiritual gifts are if love is not the attribute that defines them, right? Without love, no matter how great our gifts are. And he uses some, he's using hyperbolic language on purpose here, okay? When he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, he's saying, even if I had angelic languages, speaking, in, people get all excited about speaking in tongues. He said, look, forget human language. Let's say that I could speak angelic languages. If I don't have love, nothing, matters nothing. He gives the example here of, of uh, if I have the gift of prophecy, but not just prophecy, but I know all mysteries and all knowledge, which, of course, is, is only true of who? Of God. So let, let's just say, forget prophecy. I'll do you one better. You just, let's say you know everything. And you literally are the fount of wisdom. But you don't have love? It's useless. It means nothing. How about this? You want to talk about generosity? What if I give all my possessions to feed the poor? Not just a generous amount, but I sell it all and I give it all away. But I do it without love. It profits me nothing. So he sets the table for us here by just showing us how bankrupt our gifts are if love is not <clears throat> present. And this is true of spiritual gifts, but it's also true just of, of natural leadership ability. How, how useful is your administration and your communication? And, and even your, your listening skills, if they really are not rooted and grounded in true, genuine Christ-like love. When it comes to being a Christian leader, we have, as I said before, we have to go beyond just those uh, good but, but really worldly skills and attach to them the character of Christ. And it's then that those skills can open gospel opportunity. So with that in mind, let's look at each of these 16 descriptions, <clears throat> beginning with the first eight today. The first one is patience. Verse 4, love is patient. Now, <clears throat> these are all words, or most of them are, that are very familiar to us. And what I find helpful in my, for my own life 
is sometimes when a word is real familiar, I go look up the definition to that word because I, I find that it sort of reintroduces me to the word <clears throat> instead of just passing over it because, oh, I know, I know what patience is. So I'm going to, for many of these, I'm going to read the Greek definition of, of the Greek word that's translated into English because really that's the definition we need. So the word translated as patient is defined this way, to bear up under provocation without complaint. To bear up under provocation without complaint. So be patient or forbearing would be another way that the word could be translated. Now let's talk about this. How does it affect your job performance when you can, can feel your boss, either physically or mentally, standing over you impatiently? How does that affect your job performance? Negatively. Yeah. In what ways? You get a little nervous. Yeah. <laughs> intimidation. Intimidation, yeah. <clears throat> Bitterness. Yeah. You make the wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. Because maybe you're moving too quickly. I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. A lack of trust. Let's think about this. What is God's disposition towards us as his children? Right now, what's his disposition? He's very patient. Mm-hmm. He's overlooking the times of ignorance and asking people to repent, commanding people to repent. Yeah. Graceful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think we need to think about that in our leadership. Is, is my disposition towards those allotted to my charge, whether it be my kids, my wife, people working under me or with me, does it match the disposition that God has towards me as his child? Because that, that, when that flows out, <coughs> that changes the way we lead, it changes our relationships, and it, it opens up opportunities, because that's different than the way the world operates. <clears throat> It is God's patience rooted in his love for us that must motivate our patience with others. That's the point here. Remember, we love, 1 John four nineteen. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. It's the love of God that motivates our love for other people. And so if you struggle with patience towards someone, because let's be honest, God makes everyone differently. And there are some people he puts in your life on purpose that are really the opposite of you in most, if not every way. And they just... It's just, it's more of a struggle to be, it's really easy to be, to be patient with people that think just like we do, right? That's simple. It's those people that don't think the way that we think, and sometimes they're under your own roof, and you really struggle to be patient, but how do we get there? Well, we focus on the fact that, that God is patient towards us. Even we, we were dead in our transgressions, right? <clears throat> Christ died for us. Think about this. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is such a helpful and convicting text. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> He's going to list three different types of people here that we interact with. 1 Thessalonians five fourteen. <clears throat> he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Let's read that again. We urge you, brethren, admonish. So, 
So you're, you're going to have to warn, instruct the, um, the rebellious, the one who's acting and rebelling against God. They, they need instruction. They need admonishment. But the faint-hearted, the one who's just beat down by life, they're in the midst of some heavy trial or some difficulty or weighed down by some struggle with sin. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. But the weak, you know, maybe it's a person who, who's just perhaps just struggles to in their understanding and not very discerning. He says, come alongside and help the weak. But then he gives this blanket description for every kind of person you, you encounter, be patient with everyone. So think it. Be patient with the rebellious man. Be patient with the, the, the man who is who's cast down and, and, and weighed down. Be, be patient with the weak who lacks instruction, lacks discernment. It, I think that's really helpful for us because this is to be the consistent disposition that we have regardless of any kind of person that you deal with, no matter how frustrating. See, depending on our personality, those three of those three descriptions, we may find one type of person more frustrating than another. A rebel maybe it's just a person I just have no patience for a rebellion. I have I have no patience for for sort of the woe is me, my life is hard. I have no patience for the the person who's just uneducated and hasn't taken the time to read themselves. What whatever it may be. But God says be patient with everyone. Right? Think about this. What is God's disposition towards Unbelievers, currently. What's his disposition towards unbelievers? He's so again, patient. Right? Patient. Yeah, Second Peter chapter three. I love this passage. Beginning in verse three, he says, "Know this first of all." Then the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? So they're mocking. <laughs> where is this, this second coming of the Messiah? Where, where is this promise coming? For, and here's their justification. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation, they say. <laughs> since the, those people that were our fathers who were there supposedly and say these things, everything seems to go on just like it always has. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, when they say this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He's saying things haven't always continued like they are. There was this one time when God poured out his wrath and flooded the whole earth, right? And so it's foolish to think that to, this logic is foolish but by, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being res reserved for fire. So another outpouring of judgments coming, but not by water, but by fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But how do we explain this gap, right? From the promise to the fulfillment. Verse 8, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that, the, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Right? Is God, is God going to judge the wicked? Absolutely. Is he going to judge sin? Absolutely. But in the meantime, what do we see? Patience. He's patient with all men. We see his common grace, right? He causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good in the sense of he provides for them as rain is needed for the crops to grow. So, 
when our leadership and service is marked by patience towards others, it demonstrates the character of Christ. It shows genuine care for the person. And sometimes the simple disposition of true patience can be the open door that God uses for the gospel. Because that's not common among unbelievers. Let's talk about this for a moment. What are some of the heart sins that lurk behind impatience? What are some of the heart sins that show up with impatience towards others? Selfishness. Yeah. Selfishness is a big one. Impatience. Say again. Impatience. Right, I'm saying, but what, what are the sins that lead to impatience? Is what it, what it... Pride. Yeah. Pride is a big one, yeah. No, not love for man. Mm-hmm. It's a, you're, you're slowing me down. I could do it faster. I'm, I, I'm, it's, it's, it's taking time out of my day to have to show you how to do your job. I wish, wish you, you could get with it, right? All that. Yeah, I've got my agenda and you're interrupting it. All of that is just, it comes from a heart of pride, selfishness. And so we see that, that love then is the heart motiva- uh, disposition that motivates patience. There's a second attribute of love here back in our text in 1 Corinthians, and it is kindness. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is kind. The word is aptly translated. It means to be kind or loving or merciful. And we see that this is a command that is, uh, is not confined, of course, to to this one passage, but if you'll, you'll turn over to, I want to look at two other texts just quickly. Colossians chapter 3. In verse 12. Colossians 3.12. Gets into very similar instruction here. He says, So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Turn back one book to Ephesians chapter 4. Two books. Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32. Is let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This, this is the Christian disposition as well. Kindness. And you know, in the secular world, especially, the higher your position, the more impactful is your kindness. Think about that. The higher someone's position, the more it means to you, the more above you they are in rank, the more it means when they're genuinely kind to you. Because the world uses kindness as a means of gaining what they want from others. We think about being kind as an unbeliever, as an underling towards our boss, because ultimately we want them to think well of us, and we hope that one day we'll, we'll be in their spot. We'll advance to their place. But when we have nothing to gain... 
Or when you have nothing to gain by your kindness, it's then that your kindness really reflects the heart of God. When you being kind to someone else earns you nothing. That's the kind of kindness that God has shown to us. Love breeds kindness. Think about Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness, God's kindness, and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Why is that? What, what's the connection between the kindness of God and our repentance? We see our sin, and that's the opposite reaction that we should receive. And so we would fight defended a holy God instead of going, you're right, zap, kind, mm-hmm. provide salvation. Yeah. It's the most attractive thing ever. It's why, it's why the beginning of the gospel has to be the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. It's that dichotomy that sets up, thirdly, the work of Christ. Because then we see it as the jewel that it really is, right? And all of a sudden we see, wait a minute, if God is, is really that holy and I'm really that sinful, then what Jesus did is just, it's mind-blowing, right? And so all of a sudden that kindness of God washes over you and it's a, a brokenness ensues, a genuine brokenness of repentance, and so that's the idea here in Romans 2, 4. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. But and so... the heart of thankfulness. <clears throat> yeah. Patience grows out of, out of thankfulness. Mm. And so let's think about that then in our own lives. It, obviously, we, the love of Christ is, is infinite. Our, our kindness will never uh, match it. Uh, because the, the, the gulf between us and other people, it will never be the same as the gulf between God and us. But the same concept rings true on a human level, that when we express kindness towards those who either we gain nothing from or who actually, from a worldly sense, deserve some, the opposite from us, but they get kindness, that same effect can happen over time. Where they, when, they, when they do something and they know from a worldly sense, I need to gear up because it's about to come back at me, but what comes back is kindness, that has an impact. And it can open up gospel opportunities because you're demonstrating the character of Christ in your leadership. Or honestly, even if you are the person who's under someone else, that kind of character can influence those above you as well. If you want to be a Christian leader, it means genuine kindness must be demonstrated towards everyone under your charge. And so I'm hoping that you're thinking about the realms of life that God's given you, your kids, your grandkids, your wife, whatever, if you're still working, uh, the, the people that you're, are, who are under you. Like, <clears throat> apply these truths in your own heart and mind to each of those people. Am I kind towards that child of mine? Am I kind towards that grandchild? Am I kind towards my wife? Am I kind towards this person? Now, there's a third attribute that's mentioned back in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. So some of these are positive and some of them are negative. This is one of the first of the negatives. It is not jealous. Jealousy, the the word here is uh, defined this way. To have in intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. To have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. 
I don't know about you, but when I read the definitions, it's just like a dagger to the soul, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, that's so wicked to have negative feelings over another's achievements or success. And yet, it's a temptation in our flesh that all of us have to crucify, right? How many of you have experienced jealousy between colleagues in the workplace? What, what is that? How does that manifest? What's that look like? I've seen someone get recognized for something that you feel you Oh, you've outmatched this person, yet they're getting recognition. I think that's how it breeds in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a selfish, prideful. Yeah. How does it show up, though, in, practically in conversations among colleagues and things like that? Bitterness, irritability towards someone, criticism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're not yeah. honest, um, feedback, they trust the organization. Yeah. yeah you it's see. malicious. Huh? I'm, I'm literally, like, you may be conscious. But I, I'm looking back, I'm thinking, huh, yeah, it, it, it's gossipy. Mm-hmm. Conversation without that person there, I've downplayed their ability. Uh, yeah. Because of that desire. Yeah. Downplayed their ability and done what? Oh, totally put myself in mm-hmm. their yeah. decision. Yeah. It's like, I can't control what the higher-ups did, but with, in this conversation, I can sure control that they understand that I'm actually, should have been me. Jealousy <laughs> <laughs> um, is... Is is an attribute of God mm-hmm. in partners, right? So does Hebrew describe Hebrews describe jealousy different? Yeah. So when we talk about jealousy with God, it's it's used in a very specific sense. In 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 this way, the the closest human equivalent to righteous jealousy would be a husband who is jealous over his wife having affection for another man, right? Because it is right and good that he should expect her affection, or vice versa, she to him, to be toward. So God is jealous over his people in the sense that it is, it is the most righteous thing in existence for them to show allegiance and worship to him. So it is not sinful for him to be jealous for his people's praise because it's right. What we're talking about with human jealousy, thank you for making that distinction. Exactly, and and it's a basic principle that is that is it's it's God it's just and righteous, but what we're talking about is an inflated view of self, right? A, a self righteousness, a, a pride um, that that thinks highly of myself, and I want other people to share my opinion of myself, and so I make sure they do by pointing out behind the scenes how unjust it was that so and so was exalted and I was not, right? That, so what you have to say is, is those con- it's those conversations. It's, it's not so much that we would ever, well, we might, but we're, we're much more reluctant to go to the person who got the reward and, and say, you don't deserve this, I did. But we, we are willing to kind of have little conversations and fill people out behind the scenes to see if they kind of agree that, you know, that, you know, we all, we all, we all recognize, right, that I've been here five years longer than that guy. Right. So, um, and so there, there's, there's that temptation, but those, you have to understand it. Our influence over people is not just about the guy that got the trophy. It's about the 50 other people behind the scenes that are grumbling and they're all going around doing that because they didn't get the trophy. And when you don't, I mean, you say, you know, I actually appreciate Sam. And, you know, I've worked with him before. and He's a great guy, and he has worked hard for this. I'm so thankful that he's able to get that. It's like, what? <laughs> right? But you see, now we're expressing Christ-like character, and it can lead to gospel opportunity. Okay? Um, <clears throat> 
But it's going to require that we think rightly in our hearts if that's going to come out of our mouths. Let's think about it in a different realm. Have you ever experienced jealousy among believers in the church? Maybe, yeah. Not our church, of course. (laughs) What does that look like? How does that manifest? Jealousy among believers in the church. It puts up a wall. Mm -hmm. Split the church. Yeah. You can, yeah. There's a lot of judging going on. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Put you down. But it just doesn't further the kingdom. Yeah. It's it's just something you don't want to have in your church. But unfortunately, we're all human. It can be a temptation, right? One that we have to crucify. It it certainly caused disunity in the church. Mm -hmm. It shows up similar as work, actually, is that. Someone gets praised, you see someone get highlighted, and you wish you were the person that got highlighted. Yeah. Someone's ministry gets mentioned, and yours doesn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Know. And uh, that partner's guy over there is always getting the mention. <laughs> <laughs> uh, partner's guy. <laughs> when small groups are really the heart of the church. <laughs> It's, it sounds silly. It sounds silly, but it's the same heart sins, and they can show up in the church, and they're destructive. They're destructive because they're ungodly, right? They're, they're not the character of Christ. And I think sometimes maybe not as visible, maybe in the workplace where they're actually vocal, but maybe just in the heart and just lingering there, and mm-hmm. lingering there that's just gonna stop and renew and put off because it could be as just yeah. just because it's not active upon doesn't mean that it's not there that you have to deal with. I think maybe more. Yeah. And sadly, enjoying someone's growth. Yeah. Someone take off, and they're just they're off. They're really obeying the Lord and growing and learning. And you're sitting there, wherever you are, and you're jealous of that. Yeah. Instead of praising them and coming alongside and being the opposite of that, you in your heart of bitterness, or even to other people, like. Yeah. Or in the workplace, um, how to handle truthfulness. Like if a person is, I'll be extreme here, but if they're truly a terrible person, right, and they get promoted, and then the, is it just better to remain silent? And uh, how do we represent that without um, tearing down that person, but still showing the kindness, forgiveness, and love when the when all the gossip's flying around? How do we represent that? Yeah, I, I think first. One, you look for anything that's truly praiseworthy, even if you have to kind of squint and stand on your head to see it. Anything that's legitimately praiseworthy about that person that you could mention, right? Um, but but also just pointing to the providence of God in their life and say that the Lord is sovereign over these things, you know, and He provided that for that person in His own for His own purposes. And so ultimately, I can try, if I can't praise the person, I can praise God, right? And so I think giving. Looking at it from those points of views is helpful. Certainly, you don't lie about the person and make up something, right? Uh, but but you can speak to the providence of God and the goodness of God, and that hey, this is what He had for him, and it's what He had for me by not giving it to me. And uh, ultimately, I want what He wants from me more than I want what I want from me. Yes. You kind of like what you're saying. Um, in what's going on in the world, and else, everybody's getting upset that this person got promoted or got this president or whatever. Right. But we forget. Big thing in the that talks God talks about that everyone has been put in power by God. Right. So mm-hmm. if you're complaining about it, then you're 
God, why did you do that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we, in our country, we vote. We, we, we're allowed to share our opinion. We do all those things. At the end of the day, the guy that's the guy is the guy, um, whether we voted for him or not. And we, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean he's a great guy or that we say things about him that are untrue. But we do trust God, and we do respect authority that God's put in place, right? So it's a, it's a very helpful illustration. But I still it, ask why. <clears throat> Sorry. We, and we may not know why, but we do know. So when we don't know why, you know, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's really helpful, and it says that the, the secret things belong to God. The revealed things belong to us, essentially. What he's saying is, these are the revealed things. This is what God has chosen to tell us. And this is what we focus our attention on. But he didn't put everything in here, did he? Mm-hmm. That's right. And we trust God for what's not been revealed. And we have to see, too, that <clears throat> that person is not, it's not about that person. We put the person there. Mm-hmm. So it's more about, it says more about the people than it does about the leader. Yeah. And a whole... But ultimately, even in that, you're right. In our country, at least, we as in the country put the person there. Um, but even in that, the Lord says, I, I sovereignly ordain all of that. And so I, I put him there for my own purposes. Um, and we see God accomplish throughout, throughout history. We see God accomplish amazing things for the church on the world's scale with really wicked men in power. Um, it's no obstacle for him. And so I think it is a good reminder that he, what matters most to him is what he's doing in building his kingdom on the earth. It, it's not the things we get all upset about. And the same thing's true down in your job level, right? You not getting that promotion or, or getting the promotion is ultimately not just about your job and how your career is advancing or not advancing. It's about how God wants to use you for the upbuilding of his kingdom in the place he's put you. And if you see it that way, it starts to change everything. Say, I don't know what God is doing or why he's doing it, but I know he's doing something good. And ultimately, I do know why on the grand scheme, he's doing it for his own glory, for my spiritual good, and for the building of his kingdom. Because the Bible says that's why he does everything, for those three purposes, right? So that starts to, that's how we put off, renew our mind, and put on. You're, you're not going to get to the point in this life where, you know, there's been this known promotion coming and you interviewed for it and you know five other guys are getting it and they finally announced that, you know, you got close but you weren't the guy. You're never going to get to the point where your flesh doesn't sort of get tweaked at that. But you can get to the place that as soon as you feel that tweak, you cut it off, you kill it, and you replace it with truth and you walk in righteousness. And that's what we have to work towards. Because ultimately, remember the context not being jealous is an attribute of what characteristic in 1 Corinthians 13? Love. And so we're not walking in love towards that individual if we allow ourselves to be jealous. The next two descriptions actually flow out of this one. Um, <clears throat> the, the next one in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, and goes to the negative, is not jealous, Love does not brag. Love does not brag. <clears throat> now, this is, this is sort of the fruit of jealousy that we discussed earlier. That when we are jealous, one of the ways it shows itself is through boasting. The definition here of the Greek word for boast is to heap praise on oneself. Um, 
Now, why is this specifically a demonstration of a lack of love? We know boasting is sinful, but why is it in 1 Corinthians 13 a demonstration of a lack of love? You're not considering the other more important than yourself. <clears throat> yeah. You're like showering on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, giving it to yourself and not, not away. It's the pride issue again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, look at me. Back to pride. Back my own back. Back to selfishness, mm-hmm. right? And in exalting ourselves, what does that do to other people? Makes them want to throw up. Right. Well, 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 it does. That's the that's the result. But what are we doing? Even in a little conversation, we get into the sort of the me monster of uh, of of the one up. You know, you you hit a home run in little league, while well, I hit a grand slam. Right. So the the one up constantly. What we're doing there is is not just exalting self; it's making sure the other person knows that they're all they're, I'm exalting myself at their expense, right? That, that, to make sure they know that I already knew that that what they told me they're not they're not instructing me or or actually have done that or I've done something better, and we bring them down a notch, and so it's it's that selfishness of not considering others above ourselves. It's 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 poor leadership because it lacks the character. Of Christ, and yes, practically it makes people want to vomit, but it makes them want to vomit because uh, of what it's doing. It's its self-centered, prideful, inflated view of self. The twin of boasting is the next description. Verse five does, uh, or into verse four, love does not brag and is not arrogant. Uh, It could be translated conceited. This definition is to cause to have an exaggerated self-conception, to puff up, to make proud. You know, Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So arrogance is the heart condition that results in boasting, right? This is the disposition that shows up in boasting, our, our inflated view of self. We, we give ourselves, by the way... We, realize this about yourself in your flesh you give yourself the benefit of the doubt we do if, if we allow our flesh to have its head we, we can justify all sorts of things all sorts of sinful actions all sorts of weaknesses all sorts of lack of discipline we can justify them but well i know i did that but it was because of let me explain because of and we we have these these five or ten things in our circumstance why in that case what is normally not acceptable was acceptable or at least understandable. That, that's going to be the natural bent of your flesh is self-justification, giving yourself the benefit of the doubt. And you have to know that and be rightfully suspicious of yourself. Be suspicious of your flesh. Don't trust your view of self until you've filtered it through the Scripture to say the Bible says that this is how I should view myself. And unless I'm... What I'm saying about myself is in, in alignment with that. I can't trust my natural inclination to give myself the benefit of the doubt. The key to killing our fleshly view of self is to walk by the Spirit. And how do we walk by the Spirit? <clears throat> we fill our minds with this, right? Because the Spirit works through the Word. So as we fill our minds and we filter our minds through the Scripture, the Spirit illuminates the truth, applies the truth, and empowers us to walk in the truth. And that's what it means to walk by the Spirit. And that is the key. <clears throat> Galatians speaks of this in other places, of, of 
living in a way that is not fleshly. It causes us to see ourselves rightly. Let's talk about this verse. I'm going to read for you 1 Corinthians 4, 7. If you struggle, as all of us do, with arrogance at different times and boastfulness, this verse is so helpful because it says, what, did, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So whatever gift you have, you know, you think about LeBron James. He is a fantastic basketball player. I mean, he just is. You don't have to understand basketball to know that he's a good basketball player. But look at his body type. Yeah, he works out, but where did he get that body? God gave it to him, right? I mean, and so he can jump high, he can run fast, he can do all these things. But let's face it, I could work, I could do the same regimen of workout that LeBron James does. I'm not making it on the Lakers, okay? I mean, we could, I, I think about this in baseball, I could take steroids, I could do all the illegal stuff. I'm not going to hit 500 home runs. I'm not, right? It's, I don't have that physical physique and makeup. Um, and so what I'm saying is, even if what, your intelligence, your physical ability, your business acumen, your whatever, okay, yes, you have that. Where did it come from? The Lord. The Lord gave that to you. So if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it, as if you had earned it in and of yourself? The same thing's true with spiritual gifts. You get to do something in the church, whether it's the gift of teaching or gift of administration, whatever it is, and it really helps the church. That's great. Use it to help the church. But don't boast in that, even when people give you praise for it, because where did it come from? It came from God, and therefore the glory goes back to God. So when you feel that little fleshly temptation to sort of, I did do great. I am pretty good. I am, pro- I am really progressing. Yeah. You say, what do I have I did not receive? They go, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you've given me the ability to serve in this way. May it, may it honor you and edify your people, right? That, that's how we put off and put on in the ar- arrogant category. And I think maybe also false humility as well. Yeah. It can be a way of bragging mm. and being arrogant. Nah, it's just nothing. It's like, you know, that, that is part of you. You want to hear more of it. Right. Like, it's the whole, like, it's like, it's like stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it's that, it's that little thing. Yeah, you're like, oh, oh, quit it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Let's keep going. Uh, I don't think we're going to make it to eight, but that's okay. We might make it to six. The, um, the next attribute here. Verse 5, does not act unbecomingly. Now, this one is one that uh, we might be tempted to skip over because it, we don't exactly know what he means. So let me explain what he means by does not act unbecomingly. Uh, in the Greek lexicon, it defines this as it's a type of action that the public, that society considers to be the standard or, or praiseworthy. So it's, it's, it's acting in a way that is... Uh, on the positive side, to act becomingly, is to act in a way that, that even just regular society <clears throat> understands is, is kind, is nice, right? Not to say that society always gets that right, because some of the things that they would say is kind of nice, we would say, well, it's simple. But just generally, acting in a way that people say, yeah, that, that's a nice way to act, right? So to act unbecomingly is to behave disgracefully, dishonorably, or indecently. Some, people, some translators have translated this as rude. Love is not rude. 
So it's, it's, it's not, love doesn't act in a way that even just regular society understands. That's not how you treat people, right? That's not, it's not kind. So for instance, it, it means treating people in a polite way. It means we don't tear down people. We don't call people names to, them, to their face or behind their back. We don't belittle people, right? We, we don't embarrass people by calling them out in front of others. Essentially, we practice Matthew seven twelve in everything. Therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So to act becomingly is to fulfill the golden rule, treating other people the way that we want to be treated. This is actually, you know, it makes sense because it's Scripture, but it really is simple and very helpful if you just stop with your kids, with coworkers, and just say, okay, I need to, I need to act on this situation but if I was them, how would I want an authority to act on it towards me? And it changes things, right? It, it, it literally changes my tone. It says, you know, I should probably pull them aside and talk to them instead of in front of their brother or sister. Or I should, I should probably set a meeting with this person face-to-face and not a text message. Or I should, you know, just thinking through, how would I want that to be communicated to me? And do that. Do it that way. It's a very <clears throat> helpful way to live, and that we should... Expect that because Jesus said we should live that way. We don't act in a way that is rude or doesn't show kindness and care for other people. Now, we're going to stop at number six, but I want to give you some assignments to think on. One, um, <clears throat> I mentioned this book before, but I thought I'd bring it today. This, this is a book called Leading with Love. It's by Alexander Strzok, uh, and it essentially the first probably two-thirds of the book just walks through 1 Corinthians 13, does what we're doing. Um, and he adds some really helpful insights in addition to what we're sharing today. So I encourage you to read this if, if this has sort of stirred up some ideas in your heart of, of wanting to work on your leadership. He speaks um, sometimes pointedly to pastors and elders, but it's not just for pastors and elders. This is for anyone that's in any kind of leadership position. So I encourage you to look at that. But when it comes to applying this to our own heart, I want to give you three things, three very obvious things to do. Number one, look for love in your leadership. So basically, do, do a self-evaluation. Look for love in your leadership. And I want you to think about those key relationships. Your wife, your kids, grandkids if you have them, church, and work. Wife, kids, grandkids, church, work. Um, Look for love in your leadership, or I guess negatively, look for the lack of love in your leadership. Where are the areas where you need to grow? Where currently you say, you know what? That one kid of mine has really been, I've been treating him differently than their siblings because they do that one thing that really irritates me. I'm not showing love to them. Or my wife, we've just kind of been at each other, whatever it may be. But apply these principles to those relationships and think through all of them today and how you could better love others. Secondly, repent of loveless leadership. Repent of loveless leadership. If you realize in one of these categories that it's not just sort of been an instant of lovelessness, but there is a pattern of lovelessness, and <clears throat> go to who has been primarily affected by that and express to them genuine repentance. Even in the secular workplace, you want to talk about having a gospel opportunity Having your boss come to you and, and honestly say, please forgive me. I realize that I, I've really, I've not shown genuine care for you as an employee here. I've been thinking, I've been leading in a self-centered way. Would you please forgive me for that? And I'm committed 
to changing that pattern. Let me think about it. Okay, right? You think, think about how that would affect potentially that relationship. Do that with your wife. Do that with your kids. Do that with a believer at the church, if that's been the case. Repent of loveless leadership. Thirdly, <clears throat> cultivate loving leadership. Cultivate. So we've evaluated. We've repented of areas where we've we failed. Now we're going to cultivate. Really, we're putting off, renewing our mind, and putting on. So think through those, how far we've gotten so far through number six. And um, think through how could I better cultivate each of those, patience, kindness. Think through those different attributes. And, and some of those are going to be easier for us than others. Think on the ones that are, that are more difficult and seek to cultivate those. Um, now, now that you know where we're headed, we're just going to be walking through the rest of these attributes. I encourage you to, to just uh, sit down with your study Bible and work through these on your own in your own time and come ready to discuss uh, the remaining virtues as we talk through these together. It's helpful to think through how we can apply these things. So that'll be your assignment. But let's pray and uh, we can fellowship. Lord God, we're thankful for your word, for its clarity. We're thankful for the fact that it is, it is pointed. Um, it helps us to see where we are not in alignment with the character of Christ. And, and we know that we, in this life, we will never reach perfection in our character. But God, may we never stop striving uh, to be more like Christ, to, to love you more, to love others better and more. And we pray, God, that you would use that striving in our own lives to open gospel opportunities. Help us to be faithful and bold to share the truth of the gospel with others, but help us to be equally committed to living out the gospel so that it's not just words, but they see a changed life and they see humility and genuine love. God, use it for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.